welcome to season one of Bristlecone Firesides, casual conversation around a virtual fireside about faith, the earth, the universe, and everything. In this first season, we will be exploring foundational themes of spiritual practice rooted in the earth. We are your hosts, Abby and Madison. Join us as we strive to re-enchant the natural world with an ecologically-based spirituality that is centered in sacred text, rooted in the earth, and lived through the activist issues facing us today. Today's topic is uh, on regrounding Mormonism, um, and uh, this is kind of an abstract, or at least I think that it, it well, it's taken the abstract stuff that we talked about before, Abby, about what it, you know, how we live in this world and we're disconnected from the earth, and that the our whole way of life is about decontextualizing our lives so that we live as individuals rather than as a community. Um, and this episode is going to be more taking a focused look on that um, and how how that stuff lives inside of our Mormonism, inside of our Mormon community, uh, and trying to kind of put some flesh onto those ideas. And joining us today, we have Jared Meek, who's one of our, our friends. He's a contributor and a poet for Bristlecone Firesides. Uh, Jared, can you introduce yourself a little bit? Yeah. Um, I am originally from Texas, uh, Northeast Texas, but I met Madison and Abigail when we were up at school at BYU. Um, I studied biodiversity and conservation there, and now I'm a PhD student at Columbia University in New York City studying ecology, evolution, conservation of primarily plants, but um, a lot of a lot of other organisms as well. So fancy. Now, me and Jared actually went on a big, huge study abroad together, and we traveled a a large portion of the world together. And it was a lot of fun. And it was too fast. It was way too, too fast. Six weeks in 14 <laughs> countries. It was way too fast. Wait, when was this? I don't know, like three or four years. 2016? Yeah, that sounds about right. It's also the time Before that I, the- yeah, we, 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 I think everyone got sick while we were in Africa, which was a lot of fun. <laughs> I definitely did because I passed out and. Madison, Madison passed out. Yeah. <laughs> and other things. <laughs> Well, that was passed out. <laughs> it was a good time. Um, all right. So I just, I've written a little bit here to just uh, kind of, uh, I think from 10,000 feet, the larger question we're asking in this podcast and on Bristol and Firesides in general is where is God located? Is God out there in heaven far away from our, from our lived reality or is God uh, in the future waiting for us on the other side of death? Is God located only in temples and churches or is God located here with us right now in the messiness of our lives? Is God in the dirt, the trees, and the oceans? Uh, is God in my kitchen, in the garden, in my dishes? Uh, one of Jesus' names is Emmanuel, translated as God with us. And the incarnational mystery that is that that is that the divine became human in Jesus. Uh, the sacred became profane, thereby eliminating any distinction between the two forever. So obviously the answer is yes and God exists in all of these places. He exists out there and in here with us now and also in you know the future. I, I don't know. God's big. I'm not going to put him in a box. Um, but is it possible our religious institutions and personal spiritual practices are far-sighted and off-centered or ungrounded? So let me let me just ask uh to start. When I say an ungrounded Mormonism, uh 
what does that make you think of? How how do you think our spirit, our specific spiritual uh, institution, and our spiritual our spiritual communities as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, um, Mormons, if you're nasty, um, how would you say we are ungrounded? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's hard to talk about Mormonism or Latter Day Saintism, right? What do you say? Um, uh, Mormonism is kind of this larger cultural identifier that includes Jello and I-15 and my <laughs> I-15 construction. Yeah. hundred anyway. percent. Um, yeah, I guess my, my thoughts about that are, you know, one, one really wonderful thing about, and you hear this often, I heard this often growing up in church was people would come back from, um, visiting a church in another country, right? Like we were just talking about our study abroad, Madison. We went to, we went to church in Uganda. We went to church in France and Switzerland. And there is this, everyone always says, you know, you go somewhere else and it's the same church and it feels wonderful, you know? And there is something really special to that, but there's also something I think kind of problematic with that because like, yes, the doctrine's the same and it's wonderful that we're all sharing the same spiritual truths with each other but it's like we enter these buildings and we are all of a sudden no longer part of the community that the building stands on or the land that the building stands on and you hear a different language and you see um different cultures but there's something about the way we've constructed our church meetings and the patterns of the buildings that we're in and kind of how we move through those spaces is definitely disconnected from the land that it stands on. And you see that evidenced when you go to these different countries or even different parts of the U S you know? Um, and so it's like, it's a, it's like a positive and a negative, but that's one way that I was thinking about like, why don't I feel like I feel, I know I'm in Uganda right now, but inside this, it feels like what's happening to, the ecosystem outside of here isn't brought into the building. And I feel like it should be more. Yeah. I I would echo kind of those same sentiments. I think um, I grew up in Salt Lake, obviously. And uh, a lot of the buildings in Salt Lake um, were constructed, you know, in the early days of um, pioneers and saints in the Valley And, um, because of that, there are a lot of unique identifiers for some of the buildings that I attended, you know, stained glass windows and, um, kind of freezes. And, um, uh, a few of these, I remember like when I was in high school, they tried to remodel the building that my family attended church in. Um, and actually three of the buildings within our stake, which are all within a block of my parents' house. So, it's kind of wild, but, um, that a lot of what they wanted to do was remove those kind of unique identifiers for the buildings and make them very standardized to, you know, that typical like pokey wallpaper, um, <laughs> you know, like just really, really plain, um, and simplistic buildings. And these buildings are very unique. They're not plain. One of which was, um, you know, this, this donated estate from a really wealthy, um, Latter-day Saint, um, who then, you know, donated this giant home that he had, um, with beautiful grounds. Um, and then, you know, my ward building and our stake ward building both had, had donated, um, 
stained glass windows of, of Christ, one of him praying in the garden of Gethsemane and the other of him knocking at the door. Um, and it, it was interesting to me that their, their motivation was to remove these, these things that were so unique to that building that created such a sense of place for the people that attended that ward. Um, and gratefully the bishops and state presidents at the time, um, really fought to keep those and said, you know, you can't remove these. You can't, even if you put them in a museum, it won't be the same. Um, these are, these are tied to our history here in the ward. Um, and, and you just can't remove them like that. And I think, you know, I've attended so many other ward buildings that have built, been built um, after that era or in other places, obviously, that are newly constructed. And Jared's right. There's there's such a lack of um, identifiers that ground us to that place or that feel unique. And I think that's intentional to the church. Obviously, they don't want to create a hierarchy of wards or, you know, um, we're not there to to pay devotion to the building itself, but rather to the gospel of and doctrine of Jesus Christ. But yeah, but sometimes some if ways, the building helped out with that, it wouldn't be a problem. <laughs> yeah. And I also think there's, there's something very inherent about the place in which you live that also ties you to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, um, you know, sure. how you perceive uh, doctrine or how you receive personal revelation can be so tied to the place that you live and the experiences that you have, um, with the surroundings in which you live. Yeah. I'd say, I'd also say one way that I've appreciated, um, I think about temples, right. And there's a period of time where it's kind of this, like the smaller temples, which, Again, I'm not a, like it's super important that we have there's pros and cons to like, all of this stuff. That there's there's what? lights and shadows to everything. So that you know, it, just because we're calling out some of the shadows doesn't mean that there's not good stuff. And right, like, but I mean, I served my mission in Alaska, and Alaska was that temple in Anchorage was built during that time where it's like we're just going to churn out a lot of kind of same looking small size temples, and like love it that it's there. But then you see it's like the Italy temple that was just built, right? And it's like, this is specific to this place and this architecture and these people. Um, you see that in a lot of temples throughout the world. And I feel like we've, 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 we're, we're, we're able to tie ourselves to the land with temples. Why not also church buildings that we are in every more often, you know? Yeah. This is actually something that I hadn't actually considered before, uh, when I was kind of doing the, the outlining of this episode, um, that, I mean, so we've all been in Salt Lake, right? So the Salt Lake temple is very clearly, uh, made out of this granite. And if you go up little Cottonwood Canyon, you're going to see the exact same granite. And it's very evident that this building was hewn out of the landscape very specifically of this place. Um, but I have had the experience of like, like the old Provo temple, the, 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 the cupcake, <laughs> with the cupcake with the candle, um, not the, new probably. Yeah. The spaceship, um, where I remember going in there for the first time and just feeling like I was insulated and cut off from everything that for all I knew, the rest of the world didn't exist when I was on the inside of that building. Um, and that, that that's something that if I was to illustrate or use an example to kind of illustrate how I feel Mormonism, um, and maybe even Christianity today is, 
disconnected from the world, it's that when we go into our church buildings, into our temples, with the exception of a few, like I know the new Provo Temple has really great murals and paintings of kind of the Utah Valley area. And some of that, you know, that that exists in in a lot of temples, but it, specifically our church buildings, when you walk into there, the rest of the world could be gone. And not just not just architecturally and artistically speaking, but the way that we talk about the gospel, the way that we the way that we we orchestrate our wards is so it's so insulated. We we talk as though we're ontologically removed from the world. And that our salvation is really just like focused somewhere else in the future, or you know, we're talking about our ancestors. We're not we're, we're never really concerned with the present moment and where we are. Yeah, I think, um, you know, like being, that phrase comes to mind of being in the world, but not of the world. But I don't think that referred to like the earth, you know, like usually, at least in my life growing up, the world was always like the world of men and women doing bad things to each other. Like the world was this representation of human systems of human frailty and yeah. And, but we've like, we've also kind of extended that maybe to think like the land around us doesn't exist either. Like we don't need <laughs> to be part of that or something, you know? Yeah. Maybe. And again, you know, I'm not sure it's something we've intentionally done. So I think, uh, what I, I think we ought to talk about is this idea of the traditions of our fathers. And for those who are listening, I'm air quoting around traditions of our fathers, um, which is just like cultural baggage that we've been carrying since the beginning of Mormonism that doesn't necessarily belong to us. Right. And so I would say that this disconnection we feel as Latter-day Saints from the natural world around us. And like when we go into our church buildings, we just talk about the gospel. We talk about it as though it's isolated from everything else. Um, I'm not necessarily certain that that's an intentional thing, that that's just something that accidentally has happened because of the nature of the world that we live in. I've, I've thought, especially over the past few years that, um, I really feel like, um, like American consumer culture has really infiltrated Mormon culture and, that's perpetuating some of that. And it's not, yeah, it's not intentional. It's just like, this is the, this is the place that we live in. And in this church, although it's global, mostly grew up, grew up alongside American history. Right. And so that, that flavors everything. And uh, it's distracted us in a lot of ways. (laughs) It's a good word. Good diplomatic word. (laughs) (laughs) Uh. So I think one of these, if we're going to kind of talk about these quote unquote traditions of our fathers, I know I'm pretty sure all three of us are familiar with uh, Lynn White's essay um, on the historical roots of our ecological crisis. We've all, all three have read it in school. Um, And so is uh, Jared, I know you wrote a paper um, that kind of referenced, uh, referenced Lynn White's uh, work uh, that's at some point going to show up on Briscoe and Firesides. Um, so is there, what kind of, uh, context or history can you give us, uh, about Lynn White's kind of argument and his ideas? Yeah. So I believe this was written in 1966 or something. Um, and it's called the, the roots of our ecological crisis. And 
in it, he essentially argues that the reason we're destroying the earth is largely Christianity's fault and the paradigm that Christianity kind of places on, on human, the human psyche of you have complete control, dominion, authority over this. And um, he kind of just draws some historical um, threads through how that's happened. And one thing I think to say, I do encourage everyone to read it because the ending is wonderful. It's wonderful throughout, but it's also, it, it has been pretty heavily debated, like on, on, from multiple perspectives, religious, secular, whatever, but nevertheless, it was really influential at the time, especially right before the seventies and the environmental movement. Um, so it's really kind of maybe a foundational reading to understand how conversations about environment and religion have been shaped over the past few decades. Maybe we'll uh, provide a link in the show notes because that, that's going to be a thing that we're going to do. <laughs> but, but I remember when I first, I mean, uh, I first read this in a class at BYU and it became so clear to me, all the arguments he was laying out about like, well, Christianity says this, and this is why, you know, he's kind of hinting like, this is why they ruined the earth kind of thing. Every single point he made though, I was like, but wait, like Latter-day Saints don't, don't believe that. Yeah. And like have something directly opposite to that too. And so I'm like, he's mostly arguing against mainstream Christianity. And I'm like, you're totally missing this very unique, nuanced form of Christianity. And he even goes as far to say, like, he's, he's discussing how Christianity kind of removed um, spirits from nature. So the river God or the river spirit or the tree spirits, Christianity had to come in and kind of like stamp that out because that was more pagan, paganistic, right? And in it, he says they, um, the concept of the sacred group, sacred grove is foreign to Christianity. And I'm like, dude, <laughs> you're forgetting this religion that's literally started in a sacred grove. Dear and Lynn, so that's kind of what made me want to dig into that more. Yeah. But I think it's interesting too, because it's like, in some ways, uh, like Mormonism or like the Church of Jesus Christ for so long did not like people did not believe that we were Christian. So right. it's interesting that, you know, we are Christian, but then we've also been separated and pushed out and believed to be not Christian. So in a way we're, we've positioned ourselves at, at an advantage to say, you know, we don't, we don't have to tie ourselves to this kind of anthropocentric Christianity that Lynn White is so, um, you know, condemning of, but like we are Christian, but we don't, yeah, we don't have to accept the same kind of cultural baggage, if you will, um, that Lynn White kind of prescribes to mainstream Christianity. Yeah, no, I, uh, I, this is, it's a very interesting uh, thing because Jared and Abby, you're both completely right that Mormonism as at its core if we're talking, you know, our scriptures, our doctrines, our theology is genuinely one of the most earthy um, strains of Christianity that there is, if not the most earthy. Um, however, I'm going to push back a little bit and say that I don't think that that's what we live into as a, as a society and as a membership of the body of the church, that I think 
we unfortunately are still carrying a lot of the baggage of this historical Christianity that we just, that we need to put down. Um, because I think a lot of Lynn White's arguments, while if we're talking just purely about intellectual or doctrinal Mormonism, uh, don't hold, don't stick to us. However, if we're going to apply it to our culture and the way that we operate as, as a church and operate as a people, when we go into our church buildings, I think they absolutely stick to us. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And, um, and again, I think I go back to that's, that's like American culture seeping in yeah. and distracting us from what, like what our scriptures have actually said very, very clearly, like, man, Pearl of Great Price. What it's amazing. a unique thing. What a great price. <laughs> what a pearl. And, and in it so clearly is like, hey, there is spirit. Every single organism has its own spirit. And we just don't talk or think about that enough. But it's right there and it's very unique to our doctrine. And yeah, for some reason, I think whether it's, I don't know, whether it's time period or politics or geography or occupation of of people that started the church or something there's kind of this like there's this reticence to say hey the earth matters maybe not just as much but almost just as much as i do kind of thing because because i mean you think about the origins of the church too it's you know wilderness it's hostile it's a hostile place they had to go across the plains. They were getting kicked out from place to place. So they were very disconnected from, you know, we were in New York. Now we're in Ohio. Now we're in Missouri. And so it's like wilderness was a hostile place. And not until recently can we really maybe start to appreciate what I think God was really trying to restore at that time. Um, not just the priesthood, but this connection to the earth that we've, just because of historical contingencies, have been able to overlook I think until now. Yeah. If anything, I feel like it is just, it's almost a cultural misinterpretation as opposed to, and, and misinterpretation of doctrine that like those truths are there. You can find them. They're present, you know, in the book of Mormon in the Pearl of Great Price, like you said. Um, but that it's, it's those cultural values that are held higher or perhaps have a longer or deeper rooted history in our in our church culture rather than, you know, the ability to interpret the doctrine, um, or, or hold to that doctrine more soundly, if that makes sense, you know, like just consistently living in this way that's like about economic prosperity. If you think about the saints, when they first arrived to the Salt Lake Valley, they had to make a living. That was like number one priority was being able to survive um, in this place and be, uh, uh, you know, self-sustaining proficient in, in, um, creating a new community or the church itself would not survive. So I think in some ways our roots and our history, our, our church history are so tied to our, um, economic prosperity and, um, and the ability to be self-sustaining that sometimes they, they tend to muddle, you know, these, these doctrinal truths that we know are so important, but which one do we hold at a higher standard or, or which one do we value a little bit more? And I think culturally, 
you know, both outside and inside the church, economic wealth and prosperity sometimes take precedent over these, these doctrinal truths, whether it's intentional or not. No, you guys bring up some good points. Um, so I, uh, if you were talking historically and we're just talking like, what, you know, what are the wounds that keep getting passed down generation to generation, generational trauma? Jared, you mentioned that we, we just keep, historically speaking, we just kept getting chased out of our homelands all over the place. You know, we, whether we, we get chased from New York to Missouri to Ohio to, you know, out, out across the, the West, we just can't ever put roots down and we, we become immigrants and colonizers and refugees in a sense. Right. Uh, and so for, for generations, they could never call a place home. Um, and then on top of that, uh, once we did get, you know, come out to Salt Lake, um, the call went out to, to, you know, build Zion. Right. And so then people, people flock from all around the world, uh, leaving their homelands and come into the, you know, the Utah Salt Lake area. Um, and then they kind of lose that generational embeddedness in place. And then th that kind of, that way of, of having lost kind of a relationship with, with place over time just doesn't get handed down generation to generation. And so it's possible that I think maybe here in Utah and, and Mormon Mormonism, culturally speaking with the exception, at least American Mormonism, uh, largely is a, is a, a people who just don't know how to be rooted in place for very long because it's just not something we culturally or generationally were taught how to do. Yeah. And I, and I wonder too, I've thought about this in my own life. You know, my, my dad's from Idaho. My mom's from, well, she's from Wisconsin, but her family's from Arizona, you know, a couple of generations back. And so growing up, we, I was always going West for um, vacations to see grandparents and family. And I really, I think more than anything, I identify with the West. Like that's my place now. And except I acknowledge that that wasn't our place. You know, <laughs> I think part of this is, is we, as a culture, as a church, don't, want to face these ugly facts of, yeah, like we colonized this place. We were kicked out and persecuted. And then we came over here and persecuted an entire other groups of people. And so there's this disconnect with both the indigenous inhabitants of where we came to occupy and the land that they were very much more connected to. You know, you, you hear about even Utah Lake and the shift going from focus on Utah Lake to Mount Timpanogos because we polluted Utah Lake <laughs> and, um, and there's this, you know, this discomfort of saying, Hey, like we made mistakes and our ancestors made mistakes and people maybe feel like they don't want to like face that criticism. And, and to me, it's just like, it's okay to acknowledge past mistakes and past sins and try and improve that. That being said, I, yeah, I have felt like, where am I, where is home to me? Cause in a way I feel like it's out West, but I also just grew up in Texas, but my home isn't Texas. My home isn't really out West. Right. And my ancestors are from Europe and like Scotland and Scandinavia. But if I go there, they don't want me there either. Now, Cause I'm, 
American, <laughs> you know, well, that's so kind of, the, it's of, kind of, of like, the American, the American person, right. Is that we are, we, we are cut off from landscape. I mean, isn't that what Robin Wall Kimmerer talks about in braiding sweetgrass? Yeah, exactly. Uh, Abby, let me ask, let me ask Abby. Um, it's great that we, we talk about, um, the, having this relationship to a place and it's, you know, this kind of poetic beauty of generational embeddedness in a landscape. But like, what's the purpose? Like what's, what's the benefit of having actually caring about a place and living there for a long time? Oh, well, I've lived in Utah most of my life. I mean, there've been some brief you know, three year plus stints elsewhere, but I feel like when you're inherently tied to a place or there's emotional, um, connection to a place, there's a lot more, you know, desire to connect with it in the long run and also to protect it. I don't know. I mean, I think you become protective of the things and people and places that you love just based on the memories that exist there, the, the connections that you've had, the experiences that have taken place, um, you know, in that space. Uh, and so I, I think in some ways it's not necessarily a, a choice that we develop a sense of place, but rather um, just something that develops naturally. Uh, I've been thinking a lot about uh, the idea of pilgrimage that pilgrimage is this idea of visiting a place that's supposedly sacred to your religion. Um, and, and interestingly enough, I don't feel like the LDS church necessarily has places of pilgrimage. Um, I mean, you could say like temples, yes, uh, perhaps the sacred grove, um, or maybe, you know, some church history sites in Nauvoo, but I, I don't feel like those are necessary for your ability to form a testimony or to like gain an understanding of Jesus Christ. Whereas in other religions, that's just, um, you know, pilgrimage is almost part of it and, and part of how you worship. Um, but that like, I don't, I don't want to be sacrilegious or, or, you know, condescending, um, or insensitive to other religions. But I, I feel like in some ways, pilgrimages um, and the idea of visiting a place that is deemed sacred is instilling a false sense of place for people. You know, why do I have to visit another place that doesn't hold, um, that, that someone has told me holds value per se, but in reality, I've built my own sense of place um, and I've had connections to the gospel um, in this space that I currently live. And why is that not enough? You know, why can you not build your own sense of place, um, for you, Jared in the West, uh, in, you know, where you are currently in New York or, um, in the different places that you've been, why does that have to be pushed upon you to say you're actually from here or, you know, this place is important to your religion. That's the sense of place that you should value. But I don't think that's true. I think sense of place um, is so personal to each individual and and we can connect to others through that sense of place and, and the value that we share for that place. But that like your 
your interpretation of the gospel and the experiences that you've had can be localized to a specific sense of place that's different from everyone else's. Yeah, that, that makes me think of, well, two things. Like a lot of me agrees and part of me disagrees, but it makes me think of, um, there's this emphasis, I think more recently past 10 or 20 years that no longer is like Zion one place anymore. It's not like everyone come to Salt Lake, right? Now, very much the, at least the language is like build Zion where you are and build Zion in your home, right? And I do, I do appreciate that shift of tone. I think that's happened more recently. Um, 1800s, even 1900s, right? Everyone's coming to Utah. And now it's like, actually Zion can be right where you stand. So I definitely agree in that sense. But there is also this really special thing. And sometimes I feel like these sacred pilgrimage places, it is somewhat of like a coming home for people, right? And it's a place for them to, yes, they've built a home somewhere else, but um, here's a place that you can come and gather all together and remember this is where it started. This is like, let's kind of refresh and take this again back to where you've, where you've built. Um, come back, come back to the maybe original home. And then let's, let's take these experiences and memories and friendships and whatever you have gained from this experience back to your current home. Um, but I totally see that. Yeah. Sometimes this focus on, Oh, this place where I'm in right now isn't holy. If I want to be in a holy place, I have to go somewhere else. Yeah, that's not, that's not true. Yeah, I, sh- I, I guess I should have been more clear. that. I, yeah, I don't think that the sacred grove doesn't hold the value or that there isn't, you know, a, a very important um, uh, feeling or that it, that it doesn't hold a sacred space for the church. But yeah, rather, like I think that, it's not always necessary to make that pilgrimage, like you said, to build Zion where you are um, or to, to create that sense of place, um, you know, where you are, whether it be in New York or Utah or Texas. Yeah, no, this is, this is interesting um, because Abby, you're right on the one hand that, that while we do have these kind of low, I mean, I'm using air quotes, low grade, holy sites, they're nothing quite like, you know, Notre Dame or the Vatican or Mecca or the Taj Mahal. There, there's, we just don't have holy sites like that, right? I mean, I guess maybe there, there is speaking because both you and I are from the, you know, the Utah Salt Lake area. Um, and so the Temple Square Temple, the Salt Lake City Temple doesn't have that kind of holy site feel to us because it was just our backyard. Right. Um, I feel feel like it probably totally does for other people though. Yeah, Yeah, no, especially during conference time, you know, people come from all these other countries and it's like, I'm at temple square, you know, but I would say we do have some of these quote unquote low grade holy sites, you know, whether it's the sacred grove or whether it's Martin's cove or whether it's, you know, uh, uh, winter, winter, winter quarters, winter quarters so. or Adamon Diamond uh, in Missouri that we Liberty have jail. Wait, what? Carthage jail. Carthage jail. Yeah, sure. Carthage jail. Yeah. Um, but I think 
I think what these places can be for us. So, I mean, I wasn't anticipating us kind of moving into holy sites and sacred land because it's true. We do, there is this idea of sacred land and what is it about these experiences when we do go to these places that I think, so I think it's similar to how the sacrament, what the sacrament is, is it's, it's kind of this, it's this ordinance where we take material, we take bread and we take water, which are just kind of as base and as ordinary as matter comes. And then when we, we bless it, we kind of sow this divine light into it. And then when we take the sacrament, we, you know, that divine light kind of becomes a, like a piece of us, but what it ought to be doing is training us to see that the, the matter of the ordinary world, if something as ordinary as bread and water can be kind of transformed and made into this holy sacrament, then anything in the world can be made holy and into some kind of a sacrament, right? And so I think this idea of holy sites that if we, you know, we are to develop these kind of these relations, we go there, we experience what it's like to be, to have a holy place. We're able to export that into our places, our own homes, our own cities, our own towns, whatever, wherever we live to be able to cultivate that and see that same magic where we are, where we actually live, or at least that's how I think it, it ought to be, you know, not just us thinking that the holy can only be in this place and that our own homes and stuff are just absolute profane places. <laughs> no, but I think what you're saying, it kind of even further validates what Jared was saying earlier that like if even bread and water can be um you know these these very simple um items can represent the literal body of Christ then then I think you know hopefully I'm not speaking <laughs> blaspheme over here but that our homes too and and places that are seemingly so profane can also be transformed into these magnificent homes of beauty and worship. I mean, when have we been able to say that more than now when we're confined to them, when we don't have the opportunity to go and visit, um, you know, quote unquote, sacred spaces or temples. And, um, and I think that's so true that, that we, our homes and the places that we live or these spaces that we hold so sacred are what we make of them, not necessarily what people deem sacred, you know, cause, cause probably a non-member could go to Carthage jail and say, what is this place? Like, this is kind of a weird preserved <laughs> building of history, but like, I don't get it, you know, or someone else could go to the sacred grove and say, yeah, but down the road, there's another grove of trees that's even more beautiful. So I think that that value is, is what we make of it. Um, and, and what we put into it spiritually. You know, it, and it makes me think like we, we all know this and we're all taught these stories and I just, I personally wish we emphasized it more. Like, yeah, Moses is going into a mountain. Nephi is going into a mountain. Brother of Jared, um, we have, we have the first vision in the trees. We have the priesthood restored in the trees. Um, and we all say that and we all know that, I think, because we were, we were, we see the pictures, we see the paintings that we've been told since primary, right? But that's not just a thing of the past, you know, like, we ourselves can find 
God out in nature, just, just like these, these prophets from the past did, just like all these individuals have. And um, especially when we're, yeah, especially when we're confined to our, our home or our city, like I, I've found some of my, I don't know, some of my most spiritual experiences have been um, in, in my place in, I guess what I mean is in the, in the town I'm in, but in the, in the nature near the town I'm in. And we can have those just like anybody else has had in the past, you know? Yeah, it's a very, uh, it's a very liberating, um, idea and which is actually a very, a very Mormon idea too, that holiness is not reserved for just the prophet, right? That, that this is something all of us get. We all get personal revelation, right? We all get, we all have access to the sacrament, all this, all this kind of stuff, very Mormon. Um, and so this idea that, that, you know, we can, we can visit these holy sites experience what that is to be able to come home, to be able to cultivate it within our own homes, but not just within the four walls of our own houses, but within our backyards and, you know, to be able to develop a relationship with, uh, you know, the canyons or the mountains, or, you know, if you, if you live inside of a city, even like the garden boxes or the plants in your own house, like to be able to recognize those, those things, not just as objects, but as, as, as ingredients in your own spiritual practice. You know, I, I think what it really takes, I love what you, how you opened this too. You talked about um, finding God in, in our kitchen and in our backyards and the food we bring into our homes, where that comes from. Um, there's, I was just, last night, my wife and I were walking in this park that we love to go to. And it's called Fort Tryon Park. It's Northern Manhattan. And there's this spot there where you're looking over the Hudson at this massive bridge, the George Washington bridge, and you can see across in New Jersey in this big area called the Palisades, which is um, kind of a historic landscape painting inspiration place. And there's people in the park and there's cars driving on the road. And I was standing there and I was like, wow, there's, this is nowhere else in the world looks like this. And there's this, there's, there's this combination of the river that's existed for much longer than humans have here. And yet we've like built ourselves on top of it and we're all traveling to and fro here, but we all exist in this very unique place together right now. And I found this kind of, there's a spiritual mystical quality to it all of a sudden to me, because I recognize the, the uniqueness of it and how special it was, but that's, that, that happens anywhere. Like that can happen on the Bonneville shoreline trail. Right. Um, that's such a unique view and place that very that no one else really has seen right i mean no one else in the world has except for people who live there and i think recognizing the uniqueness of our environments and how special it is to be in those places at this specific moment in time can really connect us with god but also with each other and um i think that was kind of a tangential thought but it makes me feel um it helps. I mean, regrounding is that to me, you know, understanding how you can connect with the people in the environment and the uniqueness of where you are right now, rather than having to look for that inspiration in some far off land or something or, or even, a national park or something. Yeah. You know? 
I was just going to say, even in like a, a natural environment or, or what we perceive to be natural, we now know national parks, you know, maybe not as natural as we thought, but <laughs> what are you um, talking about? Arches just, is as natural you know, based as on us, uh, <laughs> kicking, um, indigenous people out. But, but I think I just really like what you said that it's not so much about, you know, like finding this individual blade of grass or, you know, being necessarily in the mountains, but appreciating, you know, the environment in which you live, um, and, and the cement and architecture and all of the things that that encompasses, not just the natural parts of it. I think that that truly is what regrounds us. And if we have to think of, of ourselves as grounding, um, you know, Mormonism in only natural spaces that alienates so many people who may not have access to it. Um, I think back to a lecture I had uh, at BYU where a professor was talking about how they used to do a program where they would bring kids from inner cities um, to uh, out to, I think it was a national park or a dark a dark park where they could see stars. And for a lot of them, it was one of the first time they had ever seen stars. But I, I think, you know, if we say it can only exist in natural spaces, then, you know, what are those kids to think? Can they not be grounded in Mormonism? Can they not be grounded in faith or have an appreciation for the environment in which they live? Um, and I just don't think that's true. I think there's ways to appreciate and understand and, and value um, the environment in more ways than just in the mountains or, you know, in, in those natural spaces. Like you could watch planet earth too, because that is an absolute, that's scripture. It's a scriptural documentary. <laughs> it's David Attenborough. He's just, he's, he's already attained his salvation for all the work he's done <laughs> with the BBC. Um, no, so there's this quote that I have here that I really love that I think uh, goes along with this idea. It's from J.K. Chesterton, or J? G.K. Chesterton. Um, he says, your religion is not the church you belong to, but the cosmos you live inside of. Um, and I, I really love that idea because I think... I think, and I'm kind of transitioning us to probably the, the, the back half of this conversation. Um, I think what happens is we get, we get high, high centered is not the word that I'm looking for. It's uh we get too narrowly focused. I think sometimes we, the, the church. So we, <clears throat> we, we treat the temple. If we're, you know, I'm going to approach this by a metaphor and an analogy. Um, we go to the temple so that we can feel the spirit. We can, you know, learn truths or whatever, and then bring them out into our normal, our lived experience so that we can live differently in our lives. Right. Um, and sometimes I think we, we mistake the messenger for the message with the church and, you know, you guys feel free to push back on me with this, but I, uh, I think a lot of us, myself included at one point in my life was, I definitely mistook the messenger for the message with the church and that the church, I, I, I know my relationship with it was at one point where the church was it was the repository of the righteous. It was, I needed to be here. And this was the final, this was the final place, right? That, um, and as long as I was focused on the church and doing what, you know, was, you know, checking the boxes off, I was good. Um, 
But what I what I see now, especially as you know, this this G.K. Chesterton quote uh, illustrates, is that my religion isn't necessarily this institution that I belong to. Yeah, I belong to this institution, but for what purpose? That you know, the lessons in the gospel of Jesus Christ are supposed to help cultivate me as to be a to to transform me into a new kind of person that can live in reality differently that can live and interact with with people more compassionately and more lovingly that can see the magic and the divine light inherent within all things right and so for me i think sometimes we treat the church as this final destination when it's supposed to be the thing that's taking us to seeing and experiencing reality differently yeah like i've often heard you know this like the church is the vehicle but I think you're totally right. We can, we start to see it as, because it, you know, it can start to, for good reason, consume a lot of your daily life with callings and friends from church and reading your scriptures and things like that. It starts to seem like this, this institution, which is good, but is like a cultural construct in its own way is the destination. And it's not the destination. It's just the vehicle. It's the, it's the deliverer, right? It's the, it's the messenger. Um, you know, I, I've been, th- I think that too, with, it's been on my mind with reading the book of Mormon this year, they talk about churches being built in the book of Mormon, you know, Alma baptizes and starts a church. And then for a lot of the rest of Alma um, and Helaman, even they're kind of like going around and, camping out dissensions and having to go teach people in all these different towns, but they don't really ever talk about the, the structure of how people attend these meetings. You know, there's one time where it's, you know, we all come together and we, we preach to each other and we minister to each other, but there's never a discussion of, Oh, I had this calling and this calling, there was this calling and we went to this building and, um, it seems to me much more like the book of Mormon's telling me that there's this message for these people in this nation and it helped them be better citizens of their nation. And when their entire nation was um, living the gospel, like they were all good. And the church was the church as an institution was kind of secondary to who they were in connection with each other um, in their homes, you know, and that's just one thought I had while, while reading that this year so far. And, and also, you know, I've been really impressed with, this is maybe kind of backtracking a bit, but they, they seem to really know like, where they are like they they seem to know the land really well in the the book Book of mormon Mormon, right yeah and that's something i think we often overlook too like the whole time they're talking about geography and their their locations in relation to someone else and um the seas and the bodies of water and the timber they're using to build their um their ships when they sail and there's even a point where you know they they a certain part of people leaves their hemler or something and they 
there's no timber left because the previous um, inhabitants had deforested the entire place, and so, so they started to let the trees visited. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but they but it says they started to let the tree if there if a if a tree sprung up they let it grow and didn't touch it for a while and they started to build their houses out of cement instead so they could let things be reforested right and so in a lot of ways reading the Book of Mormon this year has made me feel like these were these were people in a specific land and a specific um, sociality with each other and the church as an institution really just kind of helped them understand their place within that land and with each other more. It wasn't, it wasn't the end all. It was, it was a vehicle or like a messenger as you, as you said. Abby, any thoughts? Yeah. I, I've just been thinking a lot about how, um, the church tends to, the church has moved and is moving so much away from, you know, being this entity that tells you how to live your life and exactly what steps need to be taken towards, um, you know, your salvation and, and your ability to, um, to like get somewhere else, like you said, um, but rather, you know, laying the foundation for us to build that life that we need for ourselves, you know, and that it's giving you all of the principles and tools that you need in order to live a good life and to connect with God. But then that a lot of that connection um, and physical building that we do of our, of our testimony and how, how we you know, choose to live our life is done on our own. It's through our own agency. It's through, um, the way that we use and access those tools and, and that um, foundation that they've laid for us. So I think it's true. It's like, it's no longer just like a vehicle in which we ride smooth sailing. We're going to get there. Um, but rather how we choose to conduct it, I guess. Um, and, and how, and like the path that we take to get there, I guess. Um, but, but that like, it's more about, ugh, I hate saying this. <laughs> it's like really more about the journey than it is about the actual destination. And that's the most cheesy thing I've ever said. But, but I, I do truly think that it is like Jared said, you know, about our, our understanding of our location, our understanding of where we are and how we stand within the gospel. Yeah, no, I, uh, so I think, I think sometimes as a community, and I think this isn't something just Mormons are guilty of. I think this is, this is something American Christianity is, or Western Christianity is guilty of, is that we're farsighted. We're, we're way too focused about heaven. We're way too like, it's all about how can I be good enough so that I can, so that I can attain the reward of heaven, right? So that I can live with God again. It's, it's about, um, Oh, God's got a plan for me. And if, as long as I do everything I'm supposed to, then I can go back and live with God. Right. Um, and I, I don't think that that's the point of Mormonism at all. You know, Joseph Smith. So in kind of, uh, this is a little bit of uh, historical theology that historically there was this uh, Christianity believed in this three tiered universe. So there was heaven on the top tier, earth in the middle, and then hell on the bottom. And so the universe was stratified 
And it was all about the church was an elevator that would either get you to heaven or your own life would take you to hell. Right. Um, but I think, I think center to Mormonism was this idea that just kind of what we talked about is that no ordinary bread and water can be holy. Um, it flattens the universe and it says that no heaven, guess what? Heaven isn't on some other weird place. Heaven's here. The, the celestial kingdom is here on earth. The millennium. Great. When we have the paradisiacal earth, it's here on earth. Hell hell's here on earth. Um, that everything is pointing us back to right here, right now on this place that we already live. And so we live in kind of a, a flattened universe. And I think that is while, while that kind of an idea of a flattened universe certainly exists within certain strains of Christianity, I think Mormonism is built around this idea of a flattened universe. Um, I, I mentioned before in a previous episode that I'm a big fan of Richard Rohr, who's a Franciscan monk. Um, and he, he, he talks about how we, uh, we spend so much of our life trying to go up a down escalator that if the, the whole message of the incarnation of Jesus was that God was, God was coming here. And that's, that's the importance of the message of Jesus is that, is that we, we spend so much time, time trying to get up there, trying to go somewhere else. We miss the idea that God came here to live with us and to live the human life and the human experience to teach us how to do it, to teach us a way of living in relationship with a place and with each other that can create heaven right here, right now that the kingdom of the kingdom of God is within you and it's already here. Um, and I, I'm in love with that idea because I, uh, I am in, I'm just in, there's this book called, um, an early resurrection by Adam Miller. He's a Mormon, uh, philosopher and theologian. Actually, he's from Texas. Um, but, uh, it's he, the, the book that in early resurrection is this idea of taking your salvation out of the future and living it in the present moment that, that that's what baptism and our ordinances do is it folds, it folds time in really weird ways and it brings the future into the present so that we can live with in the quote unquote rest of the rest of the Lord right now and realize that everything we need is given to us right now. That heaven can be my backyard. It can, you know, prosperity and abundance looks like eating dinner with my family, doing my dishes. That's what it looks like if I can just rest in it and quit using, you know, my obedience or my righteousness as like as a transaction to try and get somewhere else, if I can just relax and accept that everything is given to me right here, right now, and my own breath is, can be heavenly. Yeah, I love that. I have two to three thoughts, but I'll try and condense them <laughs> into one. Um, one of them being... Again, it makes me think of temples, right? Like we say this is the house of the Lord. We've, we've constructed a place that I, at least we speak of and doctrinally that if they wanted our heavenly parents and Christ could like physically be in on earth, right? There's, you know, we have the Holy of Holies for a reason, those types of things where like, I remember... <laughs> when I first like learned about this concept of, Oh, this is a place where like Christ could come and like hang out in. 
I didn't, you know, like every time I go to a temple, I'm like, is he here now? You know, but we've, we've constructed these places, right. That we believe are good enough, um, pure enough to, for him to come. So we can do that in our own lives. And we do do that in our own lives. Like some of the sweetest moments of life are when you are connected with God. And it's not that you are leaving your body and connecting with him. It's he is coming down and he's with you right now. The spirit is with you. Um, and you feel close, but you feel very close to him while you're here on earth. And the, and the third thing is, I mean, it reminds me, you've probably maybe talked about this already in, in the past episode, but George Handley talking about the millennium. And it's like, you know, like the spirit world, the, the millennium and then the special kingdom, like that's all here we're going to be the ones that have to clean up this mess we've made. It's not like Christ <laughs> comes and fixes it all and all the pollution's cleaned up. It's like, Fudge. Uh, he, he really emphasizes, like, I really think like a lot of the millennium is us not only cleaning up the spiritual matter of the world, but like the physical matter of the world and us having to, to fix all these, all these pollution so. well it's an expansion of this idea of restoration the right if, if this is the dispensation of restoration can we expand the concept of restoration beyond the idea of our ordinances and our the priesthood in the temple can we expand the idea of restoration to be a cultural restoration and ecological restoration that it's a way more holistic idea than simply this very narrow focus on what we do as mormons yeah, and, and like articles of faith, right? The earth will be renewed and receive its paradisical glory. Do you think that just happens like that? When when has that ever been the case with anything God's asked us to do that like, I'll fix it for you, right? It's like, no, you have to put work in and we're going to have to do that. And so, yeah, exactly, Madison. I think thinking about, um, thinking about this place we're currently in as, um, we're not trying to get somewhere else, we're trying to make right here better and prepare it for, for them to come and prepare it for us in the future after this mortal sojourn is over. <laughs> That's a fun word. Sojourn. <laughs> Abby, any thoughts? Yeah. I mean, I like my mind is blown right now. That's like, those are <laughs> concepts I haven't really considered before, but I really love that idea of like, the restoration not simply happening through, you know, conversion, but also through like how, how we participate in the restoration of the earth itself. Um, and I'm disappointed because a, I can't believe I've never thought of that, but B, I just feel like we're going to have a lot to do and that, that I'm like, wow, that's perhaps that's why, you know, the millennium will not be, just a day long, it's going to be a period of time. Um, and that maybe that's why that's factored into it because we will have so much to do ecologically and culturally and, um, you know, physically, but also spiritually, um, that we're just going to have to change our mindset or, or, you know, enact new ways of thinking about the gospel to be more holistic in that sense. And maybe even accept, I mean, I know we're, either in a couple episodes, we're going to be doing one on the millennium, um, and, you know, creating Zion. But I think, um, just as an aside, I think that part of the work of restoration is accepting that 
there's a lot more people engaged in the work of restoration than just us Mormons. That, you know, I already, I already made a joke about David Attenborough, but I'm, I'm sorry. Is he actually, is he, is he, you know, a tool in God's hand <laughs> working towards the restoration of all things? Uh, maybe, you know, Wendell Berry, uh, or even, you know, Edward Abbey, the, the atheist, the secular atheist of, of them all. Was he even, uh, was he even, you know, about the work of restoration in his own, um, unique way? <laughs> Um, yeah, he's, you know, you're going to use everybody. Uh, he got, got, that's, that's God's superpowers. He can take whatever, whatever he's given and, and turn it into, into goodness. That, that's the other thing that we forget is too easily that we are the, yeah, we're, we're totally Christians, right? But we're the only, as far as I know, Christian denomination that says all the rest of you also have truth that like, that benefits us, you know, and think about the restoration. I think about that Uchtdorf talk, like the restoration is ongoing. It didn't just happen. And we're trying to like, we're trying to remember it and be, um, I don't know. We're carrying on that work of restoration. That's going to be spiritually, ecologically, but we're also carrying the restoration of truth by incorporating that from all these other religions and philosophies that we totally accept. And I don't know many other religions that, do that. So when the time comes, we're going to need everybody's perspective and expertise, whether they knew about the church or not. And many of them will still be around after the second coming, despite what some people may think. I think <laughs> there are many, 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 many good people yeah. that aren't members of the church um, that are better than members of the church in a lot <laughs> of ways that we're going to need their, their input and help with all these things. And that it's a collective effort too, you know, that, like you said, these combination of truths um, will not only be evident during the restoration, but that, but that like hopefully um, in our goal towards, um, you know, completing the restoration or maybe the restoration will never fully be completed. I don't know, but, but that like, these are something, these are things that we do together through a collective effort that it's not just, you know, singularly focused on your salvation. Um, and the purpose is not just restoration for yourself, but, but for many people and everyone that live on the earth too. Excellent. I'm so excited. This has been a great conversation. Uh, so let's move towards kind of, uh, closing this. Let me, so I'm going to ask both of you, and we can all three kind of answer the, the, it's a, it's two, it's a two part question. Number one, how have you regrounded your own Mormon experience, your own, you know, your own relationship in the church? Have you regrounded your own Mormonism? And two, how do we help reground the larger Mormonism? I can go first if you want, Jared. <laughs> okay. Um, I've thought a lot about this and I think for me personally, so much of it is tied to, um, the temple creation, um, and my body, weirdly enough that, uh, I, I love the idea of, you know, I think one of Lynn White's main arguments in that essay is that Christianity is such an anthropocentric religion, but I don't, and I don't necessarily think that that's, bad. Um, I, I mean, I do think anthropocentrism is 
technically not great, but I think there are parts of, of, um, you know, being somewhat anthropocentric that are beneficial, um, in the sense that it can tie us back to our heavenly father, um, and the responsibility that he's given to us to be good stewards of the earth, um, that it is not our job to be, um, you know, these domineering people who, who suppress the earth, but rather who care for it, um, and to work together with it. So, um, for me, I think creation, you know, thinking of, uh, what Jared said earlier, that every, every creature has a life and a spirit here on this earth that was created by God. Um, the earth itself has the spirit. We believe that it was created by God and also is a living thing that has a spirit. Um, and we also believe that it is a temple in a way, you know, in the same way that our body created by God is a temple. The earth itself is a temple. When we choose not to mistreat temples, we know the sacredness of temples. And so why, you know, why do we not desecrate a temple? Why do we think we should desecrate the earth or um, treat it anything less than, than sacred? Um, and so I think that's one way that I've been able to reground myself is, is by thinking of myself um, and the earth as both living spirits that, that are created by God, that have both a physical and a spiritual body, um, and, um, and that are temples, things that I need to respect, things that I need to care for, and that I should never devalue because they are so sacred to God as well. Um, and that's, you know, that's just one way that I felt so, so tied to the earth as of late. Wow. Do we need to say anything else? I mean, <laughs> I, that's amazing. I really love that. Um, yeah, I kind of just want to end, but I, <laughs> I, I will answer your question. Um, I recently read uh, Reflections of a Scientist, which was written by Henry Eyring, Henry B. Eyring's dad, you know, the famous... I think he was a chemist. Yeah, I think he was. was. A physicist. He was a chemist that, you know, the, the science building on campus on BYU is named after him. But in this book's really good, it, but it's kind of just like a bunch of short little essays he wrote. But there's this one part towards the end that I really, really loved that really resonated with me. So in my personal life, this really, um, this helps reground me. But he says, the creator of the universe has implanted a message in every created thing, geology, astronomy, physics, all science is really nothing more than an effort to read those messages. And in that quote, he didn't include biology, but that's what I'm studying. And specifically, but I mean, he does, cause he says every created yes. thing. Right. And so I currently with what I study, we look at, um, genetic diversity in different plants to figure out how they're related and how they um, evolved from each other, became new species. And to what many would see as a very secular kind of way of viewing the earth through, um, through science and molecules and code. Um, I see it as a very spiritual kind of endeavor of trying to read these messages that God's implanted into these organisms to help us understand how he created, um, 
why he did. And when we understand that more, it helps us have a greater concern or care for these, um, these entities that he created, right. Or that are still honestly being created. Um, creation isn't over. It's still the, by any means. it's still the first day of creation or what was it? John Muir said it's still the seventh day of creation. Yeah. So that's one way I think just in my, you know, that's like the career path I've chosen. So that's one way that I, I, I feel like I'm constantly trying to tie how does, how does what I'm doing in science relate to my faith and my connection with God and trying to understand how he did what he did and what he's trying to tell me through these things. And I think, you know, to answer the other one as, as, you know, a wider church, I feel like we've been talking in a lot of kind of abstracts, which I usually do because <laughs> that's I'm, good. I'm good at being vague with things, but a real practical thing we can do um, is this won't work in every single ward, but uh, some places it will um, like propose. So I think about primary relief society, um, family home evening, these institutions weren't top down um, organized, right? It wasn't the first president that said, we need to start doing family home evening all the time. These are institutions, historically, if you look at how they were constructed, it was people in certain wards that were like, this would be a good idea. And it worked really effectively and it became, um, it became like an institutional thing that now the global church does, right? And so I recently, I was talking to my bishop a while ago because I had been released from young men's because I like, to, I like to say that the prophet released me because it was that conference where he was like, <laughs> no more young men's leaders. It's just going to be the bishopric, right? It's now over young men's. But I was kind of there without a calling and I was like, hmm, bishop, could we like have someone be like a sustainability coordinator for our building and also like a, a connection with the community and all these interfaith groups that are doing environmental work in our, in our neighborhood. And he was like, let me think about that. And so he called me to be um, the environmental like community outreach coordinator for our ward. Right. And I think that it's a real practical thing that we could do it, depending on your leadership and your, in your area, you can propose things like this. that are like, Hey, I'm willing to volunteer more time. I'll do this other calling. I'll be a Sunday school teacher. Cool. But also I really care about trying to like get recycling bins in our, in our building or communicating, you know, a river cleanup project or something with the ward and getting volunteers out there. And if you, if you use the correct language, I think for depending on that person's personality, you can really get that implemented in a lot of places. And slowly that would become like not a weird thing, but a very commonplace thing that wards have it's like hey we're here in this community what can we do to help these people but also help the land that we're all on um i think i hope to see that start to build but i'm not sure how it's going to but we can whoever's listening if you ever listen to this think about it <laughs> and try and start implementing it i feel like it's a practical approach that we can yeah. that we can use i'm gonna do tomorrow <laughs> like you Hey Bishop. Uh. <laughs> I mean, the, the church. The church. I mean, the church is already being much more environmentally focused, at least in conversation. Right? Newsroom articles, um, talks, and, and messages from President Ballard, even at that last BYU devotional. Um, Sister Eubanks speaking at this LDS Earth Stewardship Forum. Like, it's on their minds. They know that their membership cares about these things, and or more of the membership is starting to care. And they're going to want to 
um, implement things like this. So just do your little part you can in your, in your local space and, and see where it leads. So in closing, we just want to thank Jared for, uh, for coming on. Uh, Jared was actually really uh, instrumental in some of the early conversations about bristlecone firesides. And actually the idea to have it be bristlecone was Jared's idea. I remember it was a day me and him were sitting, uh, watching a storm uh, roll through last summer in Provo. And uh, I was tossing out ideas, you know, should it be, I'm thinking aspen trees, cottonwoods, or, you know, just, I'm just thinking of trees and he's like, what, what about the bristlecone pine? And, um, and then bristlecone firesides just kind of like, it has this, this magic to it. And it, that's, we capitalized on that really quick. And so absolutely the name of bristlecone firesides is, uh, is in large part due to Jared. <laughs> so thank you, Jared. Yeah. That was a really special day. You know, I'm just amazed. I'm amazed to see what you've done with this whole idea and concept. And I love that I'm going to be able to hear from you too all the time on these episodes. So very exciting. Thank you for listening. And we hope you enjoyed this episode of Bristlecombe Firesides. If you liked this conversation, please subscribe and share widely with your friends, family, and neighbors. Consider leaving us a rating through the podcasting app of your choice. For more from Abby, Madison, and the Bristlecombe family, follow us on Twitter and Instagram and visit our website to enjoy more earthy content of faith, activism, and belonging to the earth. From the Aspen Mountains, Juniper Forests, Red Rock Deserts, and Salty Lakes of Utah, we wish you peace and goodness as you strive to find yourself in the family of the earth.